0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... RPGs in fiction. Huey Long. Unicorn secrets. And USAF Earth Stopping. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. And of course that is true of beloved Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff listeners, but what I'm talking about here are your stats in Magical Kitties Save the Day from our friends at Atlas Games. Magical Kitties Save the Day is a role-playing game for players of all ages. Play as a cat with magical powers. Save your human from corrupted robots, evil witches, money problems, and more. Even young children can learn to GM and run the game for their friends. A solo play option is available, too, for loner kitties. Magical Kitties Save the Day is kickstarting as of July 16th. You can learn more at atlas-games.com slash magicalkitties. Or follow the link in the show notes.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive, and the clamor from the audience tell us we're not just in the gaming hut, we're in an extended Tell Me More segment kicking off an all-request episode, because it's summer, I guess, and because we love our Patreon backers, not least Patreon backers Mike Marlowe and Kevin J. Maroney, who want to know more, I believe, about Kieran Gillen and Stephanie Hans's excellent comic book Die, and I'm Chenelay, I believe, that if we run out of good things to say about Die, we will talk about role-playing in fiction. Robin, is that my understanding, and is it correct?
0: Yes, because uh, a discussion of Die, uh, the, the main uh, bit of praise that I would uh, have about it is it does a very skillful job of portraying uh, the role-playing hobby in fiction, obviously from an insider's point of view. Obviously. Uh, therefore, by inference... Uh, We would uh, therefore automatically be talking about uh, how uh, you portray RPGs in fiction because this does it well, and and, uh, we will then suggest other things that do it well, and uh, maybe some other things. Not so well, so. Don't and do as, as well. you pointed out in, uh, well, I guess first of all, we, full disclosure. Full disclosure. Uh, full disclosure. Uh, I, I like liked Die very much as well. Um, and, uh, chapter five is named after a thing I always say.
1: So. Exactly. You could say that I've been intellectually bribed. You could say that. Uh, but, or uh, you could say that both Kieran Gillen and Robin recognize a central literary truth that exists independent of either. Uh,
0: you could say that.
1: If you were Northrop <laughs> Fry. You could say <laughs> yes, that. Yes, as soon as you get. Old
0: Northrop Rack to talk about role-playing games. Right. So one of the things that it uh, does really well is uh, that it is clearly uh, the... Tropes about role playing that it presents are coming from within role playing culture. If you didn't know that, uh, Kieran has also released a set of rules to go with his game. Yes, <laughs> you know, if, if any cred needed to be demonstrated, it it uh, it has been yes. by engaging in the number <laughs> yes. one gamer activity. And, and,
1: and to do something that ridiculously financially self defeating will demonstrate <laughs> his role playing game cred better than anything we can imagine. Yeah. Certainly, and it's a it's a lovely game by the way. It um uh, has a lot of very fun and interesting things because. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's because, but Kieran is primarily, of course, a comics writer, not a role-playing game designer, and so when he looks at designs, he, I think, has a very similar approach than, to, than you do, Robin, where it's like, how do I take this thing that always happens in fiction or in story and make it happen at the table, and how do I uh really egg the pudding to make this uh, story come out the way that I want it to? And uh, in that, he has a lot in common, of course, also with the generation of indie game designers, Beginning at the beginning of the century. So uh, die. although it feels trad, it's full of tradly ingredients. It is a very indie design and also a very narratively focused design, much like one of yours. Not to talk about depictions of role playing and role playing, which is a whole different topic. That's the gaming hut inside the gaming hut.
0: Uh, right. And so, uh, one of the ways, for example, that you can tell it is, it's, so the, the premise basically is it's the yeah. uh, falling into the uh, uh, alien fantastical world uh, premise, which is uh, a premise numero uno of the fantasy genre, and so it's uh, a mm-hmm. classical in that sense, and it's very clearly uh, sort of doing a grown up take on the premise of the d and d cartoon uh, but the mm-hmm. tropes the character tropes that it draws on are familiar not just of d twenty characters in fact they're sort of not they're sort of it's a it's a very homebrew game with a lot of uh modernist uh, elements in it but you have like oh it's the power gamer it's the guy who always goes in and punches the guy in the tavern is this one particular character and you know here's the. Uh, the specialist, uh, ca- character who plays it, uh, who wants to play their cool character, even though it's a fantasy game. And so the, the right. behavior of the, uh, players who are thrown back into this fantasy world that they first visited when they were D&D playing, uh, college students, I think. And now they're thrown back in as, as, uh, disillusioned or, uh, committed, uh, middle-aged people and something horrible happened the first time around. And, uh, and then they're thrown. Uh, you know, back into this, uh, uh, fantasy world. So not at all an unfamiliar, uh, setup. The other thing I think that is interesting about it is that it embraces the metatextuality of a role-playing game session. And so they're not, they're not only thrown Gumby style into a fictional reality, but it is, uh, one of which they have, a metatextual, uh, relationship with. And so right. uh, you know, they uh they meet a famous fantasy author along the way, and that is uh, you know, that they are not only menaced by attacks, but they're menaced by a meta text.
1: Yeah. And uh not just any meta text, but a meta text of their own creation, right? The the core of it is is that this is a game that they all played as teenagers that they have been flung back into by action. And so they have sort of the ongoing struggle, not only between themselves and their fantasy characters, but themselves as co-creators of their, of their predicament in a way, right. That they have, so it's, it it adds that sort of that fun, I don't want to say existential, but it's very much like sort of, you know, Camus or, or Sartre or somebody where you're sort of the guy who built your own stupid hell, you idiot. And now you have to figure out how to live in it or climb out of it. One or the other. Um, and so that adds a kind of a dimensionality to it that you don't normally get. Well, first of all, in fantasy, but second of all, in a comic book. So it, it, it manages the really terrific thing that not a lot of comic book writers can do of providing a dimensionality that extends outside the pages so that you are recognizing that these questions are real and important questions to the to the characters, not just to the reader. And so it it, it it unifies that in a way that I think a lot of comics don't. And so in theory, that would be, you know, that'd be a great approach for anything. But it really works with this sort of fantasy, which by and large uh, has left that utility on the table to the extent that I know much about it.
0: And as far as the obstacle building of, of the narrative is concerned, the thing that they are facing is that they are fighting an adversarial DM.
1: Yeah. And
0: right. they are uh, not only as a meta text, but in order to win, they have to meta game and uh, not only yeah. react to the things in the environment as if they are uh, part of a fantasy world that is uh, real to them and is, is dangerous to them, but one in which they can uh, think about the motivations of the adversary, knowing that he thinks like a DM. And uh, and may have, uh, you know, that may motivate him in uh, particular ways. So this, I think, is a, it, we are often uh, unsatisfied as role players seeing uh, depictions of role playing in other media. And, uh, you know, and there's some quite uh, famous examples of that. And because the obvious outsider point of view on role playing is to look at it as, oh, look at these sad people who have to play this game in order to realize their fantasies. And there's even like a documentary on role-playing that takes that point of view, uh, which is yeah. uh patronizing, to say the very least. And, of, and course, of course,
1: that view can also come from within, as with the community episode Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, which takes exactly that view, that this is a thing that, you know, sad people do, but... But they decide to do it to help another sad friend and then of course it goes hilariously wrong because community. Um but Dan Harmon was uh, a D&D player from the before time, so there's a degree of... I, you want to say internalized trauma, right. but I don't think he really internalizes very much by, by the later episodes of I, Community. I think
0: Dan Harmon would say that he is a sad person. <laughs> yeah, I think he yeah. would
1: agree. He would to that. It's, it's, the, it's the extension of, of that from Dan's personal uh, brew to the entire 40 million strong Dungeons and Dragons uh, hobby that is perhaps a bit of a logical reach. Right.
0: And, and certainly even now uh, you see things ostensibly aimed at uh, uh, geeks and a geek audience uh, that will take that stance. Uh, the What We Do in the Shadows show, which I liked overall, but uh, a couple of episodes uh, resort to some pretty grievous hack clam uh, comedy lines. And one of them is they, you know, that the, when they're looking for virgins, they go find the role-playing uh, game group. And so, uh, that is still something that uh, persists to this day. Um, Stranger Things uh, is another example of something that I think uh, does role-playing in a way that uh, uh, we embrace. And in the uh, otherwise kind of disappointing recent season, they do the another thing that's uh, inside gamer culture, which is they hit the point where their gaming group in high school or, I guess, g- early grade school or whatever, wherever the kids are at, Falls apart when some of the members of the group become interested in, uh, dating and the opposite sex. I sets. think they're in junior high yeah, by now. Yes. So, uh, that is, uh, again, I think something that is, uh, that draws its conflict around the games from uh, an awareness of them. So they. They they've hit that demographic bump when there's other things to do than fight the Demogorgon. Uh For example, fight the actual Demogorgon.
1: Exactly. There are a number of novels that, to one degree or another, incorporate fantasy role playing. Uh, obviously, we can all think of examples of novels that began as fantasy games, and uh, not just gamer tie-in fiction. I think Raymond Feist's Fairy Tale, which is actually a good horror story. Uh, began as a, as a game on the table. And of course the expanse began, I believe, as a traveler game. Um, and then there are novels about people who fall into their game world for good or for ill. And there are terrible horror novels and there is the generally, I guess, well regarded series Guardians of the Flame by Joel Rosenberg, which I have not read because I noped out of reading doorstop fantasy well before it began, uh, running. So I hope it's okay. I've, I've, uh, I generally don't hear a lot of screaming anger at it from people who are angry at its role playing uh, portrayal. Let's put it that and, way. And uh,
0: to define doorstop fantasy for those who don't know the term,
1: uh, doorstop fantasy is fantasy published in novels large enough to stop your door, right? <laughs> and a series thereof. I yes. composed of the
0: nice slim, uh, sixty to seventy thousand words. That uh, right, I think
1: iconic You're fiction is Jack Vance length. Yes. Um. Yeah. So uh, there are other examples like that, and then for a while. Uh, that was a thing that people used to introduce into books to give their characters nerd cred. So there is a, uh, story that is not really about the game at all, but that is about the Mabinogion in the American South and the protagonist, uh, makes kind of a screaming deal about being a GURPS player. And, uh, that is just there to establish the fact that he's a, a nerd who likes to over-engineer things, which I guess we learned from the book as well but it's a but it's a a note that i think a lot of people writing back in the day and of course dream park is a a novel about a big exciting larp that goes commercial and or wrong so a lot of that began filtering in as as the game hobby began to blow up amongst uh the sort of sf woke in the 70s and early 80s right
0: right and i I guess that is the next wave then of uh a winking to the uh, uh, ever-growing game-aware o- audiences, uh, you know the the first movie that has people casually playing Call of Cthulhu will get mm-hmm. some uh, some big uh, thumbs up. And so the uh, because of course our our experience of role playing, uh, well for you and I it's our job, so it's pretty central to our uh, existence, mm-hmm. and it's also a sort of an interesting you know odd uh, job that you could give somebody. It's always uh, in fiction. It is always a challenge to uh, have. Uh, occupations that the uh, protagonist uh, has some degree of schedule flexibility around so they can go off and have interesting problems. So uh, that's something that's still lying on the table is to just have a novel where someone is incidentally a, a pen and paper
1: game designer. We will be just as mad as all the working authors are when they see the pen and paper RPG designer uh, casually take last minute flights and live in a lake. Well, house. The weird thing
0: about that is tangent alert, tangent alert, all of these <laughs> depictions that get the basic facts of being a writer wrong are also written by writers who, who should know yes. better, but are uh, taking advantage of the, uh, and perpetuating the global ignorance of their, uh, their audience in terms of having architect is another big one. Who knows what architects do? They run away from biplanes. Mostly if you're you're the
1: son of an architect, you, you do actually ask a few hard questions. (laughs) Hey dad, how come we don't live in a giant house extending out over a cliff? And why aren't you fighting Nazis instead of designing buildings? What's that about?
0: So, uh, it would be fun sometime to just see, you know, a a work of literary fiction where that's just another throwaway detail that adds uh, color as it does in your, uh, in your Gerps example uh but mm. in terms of uh you know making the experience of role playing uh central to a narrative you it is difficult to escape the heavy hand of uh of uh, trope cliche coming down upon you and saying well obviously this is to address some sort of deficiency in these people's lives well the deficiency is they have some time to kill and some friends they want to
1: hang out with right and and, and that's and that's again one of the interesting things about die right is that The characters' problems do not stem from them being gamers, if I may say this without – and it shows up pretty early. It stems from the trauma of having a previous fantasy event erupt into their lives. Yes. Right? So it's not, oh, they have to work out their trauma by playing a game. I mean, yes, they do. But again, uh, Gillen takes what is – as you uh elude a very very tiresome uh plot element and manages to make it good and interesting by simply thinking a little bit longer about it than most people apparently ever do and so he's like, yeah okay
0: right and in part in part because the last thing they want to do is return to that world they they don't want to play a right. game again yeah. it's it's like Narnia where they go, hell no i'm <laughs> Let's let's just chop down the wardrobe and set it on fire. Screw that
1: noise. Mm-hmm. We go through there. It's just Christian allegory all the way down. It's all the way down. Well, that's I mean that's uh, that's a real strength of the, of the quality of Turkish delight and Narnia that even Edmund wanted to go yes, back. Exactly. You'd think he'd have had enough. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's post-war England, so Turkish Delight was, right, like yeah, so literally, literally there's nothing in, else in to existence. do.
1: Just sit there and stare at something grey.
0: Yes. I, I think we're, we're uh, tangenting yet again, Ken, so it's time to, uh, escape, uh, this portal that threatens to suck us into the reality of our own podcast, which uh, would be terrifying indeed. And, uh, it and let's see what uh, lurks on the other side of this exciting commercial message.
1: In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the cthulhu mythos
0: a government program named majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural a government program named delta green tries to destroy the unnatural in the
1: fall of delta green you play the agents of delta green caught between your oath to america and your duty to humanity Caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions.
0: Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's
1: Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction.
0: Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly
1: thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website.
0: It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s, in gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world... The humidity in the air and the paper fans that people wave to keep themselves cool. And, oh, look, I think there might be some bunting in other accoutrements borrowed from the politics hut. Let us know that we're once again standing in the confines of the history hut. And this time around, patron backer Steve Sick has a simple assignment for us, which is to ask, what could we do
1: with Huey Long? Well, what can't you do with Huey Long? Yes. That's what I say.
0: Yeah. So, uh, for the uninitiated, he was he's probably the most famous uh former uh, like deceased governor of the 20th century in, in American politics. Is there a more famous governor who didn't then go on to be president
1: who didn't be, go on to become president? Yeah. I mean, certainly if you top out at governor, it is hard to beat Huey Long's uh long shadow. I'm having a hard time thinking of, of another governor who's as legendary on on literally every level, right. As who he was, there'd be Wallace, but he, uh, yeah, he he, has, he didn't have Robert Penn Warren write a novel about
0: him. So there you go. No,
1: and also George Wallace is sort of a one-dimensional villain guy, right? I mean. He's uh, standing in the courthouse door, segregation forever. Yeah. That's it. We're done. We've done yeah. Wallace. But as you can tell, we can do 15 minutes at least on Huey Long. Right.
0: So he was governor of Louisiana between 1928 and 1932. Then he went on to be a U.S. senator from uh, 32 until uh, his uh, tenure there was interrupted by his assassination in 1935. And uh, he was uh, assassinated by a man named Carl Weiss. Who is the son-in-law of a judge that Long had just had ousted. So, uh, it's also an unusual American political assassination that was a pretty direct, uh, grudge that turned into, uh, gunplay. So, uh, how would you, uh, flesh that out and further encapsulate what it is about Huey Long that makes him so interesting?
1: I mean, first of all, Huey Long, because he is a politician at the beginning of the period of electronic media, He is the first batch of these sort of uh, larger-than-life people to have this big national uh, presence. And you can see some of that even in FDR and other politicians of of the period who are presenting not just a program, but a drama to go with the program. And of course, there's ample drama in American politics back to the founding, but – uh, for Huey, he, for example, has a gigantic radio presence that a lot of, uh, governors didn't have and, and not a lot of candidates had. He did a, a ton of, uh, of big showy, uh, things. He had pamphlets. He had national, um, uh, uh, campaigns because he was setting himself up to run for president in 1936. And so he had a, a, a much bigger presence on the stage than even other governors in the 1930s did. And of course, he had the great tradition of Southern politics, which is uh, both retail and knife fight at the same time. And so there is a, a degree of drama to his uh, career um, as a machine politician that is not present in the governorship of other less Hilariously, uh, corrupt states, and even states that are pretty corrupt. The governor of Illinois, not particularly famous in this era. Uh, mayors of Chicago, yes. Governors of Illinois, not so much. Well, as covered previously on the show, Illinois is merely a footnote to Chicago. It, it's the front, it's the front lawn of Chicago. And, and we're happy that way. But anyway, he's a lot of the reason he has this presence because he deliberately built this presence, and for a while was immensely popular all over America with what he called the "Share Our Wealth" plan, which in his case was confiscatory taxation and then redistribute the money to the poor. And if that sounds familiar, well, there you go. Uh, nothing old uh, stays old,
0: right? So he's cited it as, as an example of a left wing populist of which he mm-hmm. is. Uh There's not a ton of other uh, successful examples who get to a, a high political office in, in the right. U.S., but he's uh, uh, cited as an example that populism need not be a mere uh, sort of a side dish to the right. And uh, it is also... Which, which, of course,
1: doesn't stop people from labeling him a fascist. Right. And indeed, you know... Depending on how you want to read the fascism that was on the ground in the 1930s, uh, there were plenty of fascists who also came to power with a similar anti-rich guy, uh, ethos. Uh, they just, uh, very rapidly, uh, got on Team Rich Guy once they discovered that rich guys would pay you to leave them alone.
0: Right. Uh, most notably, uh, Sinclair Lewis, right. who, uh, I think perceived, <laughs> uh, Long as a threat to FDR, uh, right. wrote a novel called It Can't Happen Here, in which the, uh, thinly veiled Huey Long character,
1: uh, is basically an American Hitler, which right. uh, seems a bit unfair, I have to say. It does. Good old thing. And, um, uh, at, at the time, they thought he was an American, uh, Lenin. But he did have a very powerful political machine and, uh, a sort of, wouldn't hesitate to say private army, but, the uh, Louisiana National Guard was very much under his thumb and at his command. So for example, he ordered them to surround the state capitol when his lieutenant governor attempted to become governor while Huey ran for senator. And he said, we're not going to allow that kind of thing. Uh, and he, uh, denounced the lieutenant governor's coup d'etat, had him thrown out by the Louisiana Supreme Court, which I suspect had been pre-packed, uh, and then, uh, hand installed uh, his own choice as governor to succeed him as senator so that he could be basically senator and governor at the same time.
0: Uh, he had a great nickname, the Kingfish. Uh, he, uh, founded a, uh, political dynasty. So longs were big in Louisiana politics for a while afterwards, but, uh, this is all just the regular history without any make-em-ups or
1: tentacles. Right. So, yeah. uh,
0: 1928 to 1932 is prime, uh, Trail of Cthulhu, uh, territory. So, uh, if our characters are uh, headed down there in uh, search of the uh, the mythos and are going to encounter uh, Huey Long before he is assassinated, uh, what uh, might uh, draw them there and what what help uh, or uh, perhaps uh, uh, resistance might uh, Huey Long offer them?
1: I think the, the interesting thing, if you're running a game in the Louisiana of the 1930s and you, you set your game there, obviously there's ample quality. Lovecraft, of course, puts the Cthulhu cult there in St. Bernard Parish, just south of New Orleans. Um, you have uh, the whole rich gumbo of New Orleans voodoo. You have uh, African-American hoodoo and conjure magic. You've got uh, all manner of, of crazy behavior. Lots of uh, work farms and prisons for uh, despair to fester in. And uh, it's just good Lovecraft scenery uh, down there in the swamps. And and so you have a lot of that, and Long is the guy who I think you keep a question mark over it as long as you possibly can. I love the notion that Long has made a deal. He's gone to a crossroads at some point, maybe near Lothotep, maybe something else. And so he's he's there to help you out, and he'll send the National Guard when you point out that the cult is much bigger than you thought. But you're not sure that maybe there isn't something else going on, and uh, maybe it's a true detective style all uh, powerful people are contemptible sociopaths type thing. Maybe it's uh, that he did make a deal with Nierlathep, or he made a, uh, or he has some other thing going on. And you can leave that up to the question, and then you get to 1935 where you're like, oh my god, do we have to kill this guy? And and make the players the 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 orchestrators of of the murder. And I think that that provides you with that sort of you know he's been such a huge presence in your game mostly off stage. And now it's, oh, man, do we have to assassinate the governor and then run away? Is that what we have to do?
0: And uh, the, the flip side of that, of course, is if you uh, if your characters have just fallen in love with Huey Long and if you're playing him right, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't uh, they? If you don't want to be delightful. Yes. If you don't want to bum uh, them out to quite that degree. Right. You could just have a whole campaign that is, as you suggest, uh, just confined to Louisiana. Uh, and then, you know, the final capstone could, could be. Uh, you know, you find out the real reason behind the assassination and, uh, and, uh, you know, you track down whatever, uh, Narlathotep cult or whatever it is that is uh, responsible for uh, taking him off the board. And then you discover that you have to continue and take up his mantle. And, you know, sure, his family's going to go on with the, uh, uh, mundane, uh, political, uh, situation, but it's your job to continue on. Uh, Huey Long's, uh, uh mantle as a, uh, battler of the paranormal. So, and, and of course that's, if you're running that campaign throughout your question in the back of your mind is, which way am I going to go on this, right? Am I going to, uh, have, uh, their, uh, powerful patron betray them, uh, which is, uh, exciting, uh, and yet also familiar, or are you going to let them have some, uh, some vengeance, which, uh, is not necessarily as predictable, but also, uh, kind of goes against the, uh, the, the doom and despair of a, uh, a proper Cthulhu scenario. So I guess basically the question is purist or pulp? Which way right. do you go in terms of what uh, side, uh, uh, Huey Long is on? Now, the old capital in Louisiana does have a ghost, but unfortunately it's not the ghost of Huey Long. Uh, in, in real life, he, uh, maintains a sort of a, a staunch both feet in our reality, uh, sort of situation. Uh so uh, the possibility of uh, uh, meeting him as a ghost seems uh, uh less
1: uh,
0: uh fruitful unless of Although, course
1: Although I think he makes an ideal uh character to have become a loa one of the sort of uh, powerful spirits that hovers around and gets stuff done. And I think that the notion of conjuring him into you and, uh, being ridden by Huey Long could provide some great fun for a game that had that element to it.
0: That the reason he's not a ghost in the Capitol is that you've, you've already got his ghost, uh, busy,
1: uh, working for you in the background. Right. Or you're working for him. That's how Loa's working,
0: Right. Exactly. Or, uh, you could also go with the old, uh, we, uh, investigate his assassination and discover. That he faked his own death to more uh assiduously uh, combat the mythos. You can't both be a senate you can be a governor and a senator at the same time, but you can't be a governor, a senator, and a uh mythos fighter. A, a mythos fighter. Uh so you might uh find that he is still alive and uh and then be uh, still have him as a as a patron, which would also be a, a nice switch up to you find out the you know, that the people who quote unquote killed him uh, are indeed evildoers who you have to track down, but then after you do that he Shows up, uh, possibly transformed in some way and, uh, you know, he might be a head in a jar. Who knows? But, right. uh, he orchestrated everything and, uh, and that can't be the level of orchestration that takes away your sense of agency, but it might be, you know, yet another fun twist. If, if they really love Huey Long, uh, to, uh, t- to get him back and keep him, uh, in your game, uh, you know, with that, you know, slight inconvenience of having been assassinated.
1: Mm-hmm. Or he could have, as you say, orchestrated the assassination because being killed is a transfiguring moment in his magical working. Right. If he's, you know, made that deal, maybe not with the author, but maybe with uh, uh make care for or the devil. And uh he's got some notion that after he dies, he can rise again and be, you know, invincible, whether that's a vampire. If you're doing a sort of a, a Cajun Knights Black agents or if it's as some other sort of uh strange duppy, uh if you're sticking to the, the the Caribbean uh tradition, uh then maybe yes, the evildoers were evildoers who killed him, but they killed him because Huey had roped them into it, and Huey was always one step ahead. And now he's he's undead and he's moving through the lands of the of the dead and the living uh, with impunity. And again, you always have a chance to do a heel turn with Huey if you want to. Um and it it may be even more effective if they really love him, that it's like, Why, don't worry, I will once I come into my own power I'll be giving you a piece of the wealth. And it's like, Oh, I don't know if I like the way he said that.
0: Yes. He's still a supernatural being in the, in the world of the mythos where
1: there are, uh, where good supernatural beings are, uh, thin on the thin ground. Thin on the ground. Yeah. He could, he could be in dreamlands, right? He, he gets killed and so his, his powerful spirit goes off and now he's, uh, r- rapscallionly organizing, uh, di- dilath to fight off the slave traders and, and be a, um, uh, a big common power. And yes. suddenly radio is showing up in the dreamlands. Share the wealth becomes all about, uh, invading the
0: fortresses of the uh, evil potentates and uh, stripping them of their gold. Taking their rubies. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, I think that is uh, a, a list of things that we can do with Huey Long. Therefore, uh, we can move uh, expeditiously taking down the bunting before we go and see uh, just what waits for us on uh, on the other side of this commercial. The Best of Aspthagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG.
1: All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Aspageln
0: on Drive Through. Protect this podcast from an antler critical hit by joining
1: such Patreon backers as... Joshua Hillerup, Gwendolyn Schmidt, Timothy Corum, Tony Camp, and Ariel Celeste. It's time once again to Ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Polydamas asks Ken and Robin. The fun-ruining philologist at the language log proposed that the Chinese unicorn, or Kai Lin, is another name for the reindeer, or croinos, horned animal. Croinos, by the way, a Proto-Indo-European term. Confucius reports that one was captured by those who did not understand its true significance. What wonderful and or terrible truth? Are they trying to hide a lot packed into that question from Polydamas? I guess we begin by talking about the qilin, right, Robin? Yes.
0: Uh, so the uh, the qilin or the uh, Chinese uh, unicorn, and of course, the qilin refer to unicorns as the European qilins. They do not like that uh, designation particularly. Are right. a, uh, a example of the sort of fabulous creatures of East Asian mythology, and they're not. Uh, they radiated out from. Uh, China to Japan and Vietnam and Thailand and all sorts of other places. So they're just like the unicorn is known in many different European countries. The, the Kai Lin uh, or Kai Rin, as he's known in, in uh, Japan, uh, we can tell he's benevolent because he's uh, responsible for bringing beer to humanity. That's always yes. a, uh, an important gift. But uh, like many of the uh, supernatural uh, creatures of that region, uh, did not easily turn into a D and d monster by dint of his extreme benevolence. The, the the most, the thing you most want is to be visited by, uh, one of these miraculous, uh, antlered, uh, possibly fish-scaled, uh, chimera. They're, they're so, uh, wonderful and nice. They won't even step on grass because they don't even hurt the grass. So they levitate above the grass and their uh, appearance can herald the, uh, the birth of a sage. Uh, and, uh, supposedly, uh, they, uh, came around when Confucius was born to, uh, confer, uh, that, uh, uh, uh premonition that that good uh, omen upon him, and uh also, according to uh another or possibly the same legend, uh showed up uh just before uh he died and I guess you've discovered uh something else about uh the the timing of uh, Confucius and his writings on the uh the Ky
1: okay in the um uh, spring and autumn annals uh there is a line that says, in the spring of the Duke's 14th year, they hunted in the West and caught a lin. And lin is, of course, what a kai lin used to be called before they had to add the kai to straighten people out. And people believed that uh that was the last words written by Confucius, and so therefore it had a powerful meaning. And the meaning, according to later Confucian doctrine, was that it was a thing out of its natural place, that this strange beast was hunted and not caught, which implies that it should have been domestic to China, but was not in fact domestic to China. And it was caught in 481, but nothing happened. The, the Kylan is supposed to show up and institute the realm of virtue by bestowing the mandate of heaven on the new emperor and nothing happened. Things just kept getting worse, and so that is why uh Confucian, in disgust, throws down his pen or his brush, rather, and then doesn't ever write anything. Is he's like, if people are finding Kailin and it's not bringing about the mandate of heaven, what am I even doing? What am I even <laughs> doing here? And that's and that's what the Han Dynasty commentaries on Confucius decided he meant by uh, that line that uh, uh, the the Kailin was found. And so the um I, I want to real briefly though, Robin. Before we get into the question of the kailin too deeply, I want to shout out to the goat of justice, because <laughs> the goat of justice, the jiaji <laughs> ji, or ji, as it was known back in the day, before, again, they added the extra syllable. Um, guess how many horns it has? One. Guess how many horns a kailin has? More than one. That makes it not a unicorn, uni meaning one. The kailin has antlers, as I believe we will get to in a bit, and was later identified as the giraffe by uh, the Ming Dynasty, the goat of justice has one horn, and it's there whenever you need justice. It doesn't get sent from the gods at a special time. It just shows up when justice needs to be done. It's, yeah. It wanders through the world. It's good. It's humble. It's but magical. The need for
0: justice is, is much more common right. than the need to uh, herald the arrival of a sage or to d- grant a divine mandate.
1: Exactly. Um. And as you perhaps could have seen coming, the goat of justice is probably based, based on its depiction in old Chinese art, on a uh, species of jungle goat or cow uh, called the Sao la, which is now, of course, nearly extinct. <laughs> so if you were worried, um, uh, and in fairness, yes, the saola also has more than one horn. Do not write in. But uh, like the oryx, when seen from one side, it looks like it only has the one horn. And indeed, uh, because the uh, Chinese were big believers, as were the Europeans and other people of that era, in the notion of... Strange births being, uh, signs from the gods. A Sao La that was born with only one horn would obviously be an omen. And so in a very long and very angry article by Jeannie Thomas Parker, she argues that the Chinese unicorn is the Zhi. Uh, stop talking about the Kailin. It's a raw, ro- it's the different animal. It doesn't unicorn. Uh, stop messing with it. Right. And she, uh, presents the Sao La, I think pretty conclusively as the original of the, of the, of the Zhi. Or the Zhu, I should yeah. probably say. More, more notable for favoring its profile when photographed. More notable for, well, like, like you do. And that is uh, the good of justice. So it would be an injustice to the good of justice to not bring it up. Uh, that said, it's not a reindeer. And I believe that the argument that the Kailin is captured as, uh, Confucius notes up in the western part of China, uh, near the Gobi Desert, uh, makes it sound like maybe the Kylin might have been a reindeer brought down from the Siberian forests by someone who thinks, I'll bet the Chinese will buy this. they like stuff
0: right uh because the the whole notion of if there is a, a celestial creature that confers uh divine legitimacy upon you 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 can't go and capture that creature and get divine legitimacy that way you've got to you know you've got to wait for the creature to consent and agree that just capturing the creature uh that's that's something some sort of punk who doesn't deserve legitimacy is going to do to try to uh mantle themselves in the you know oh hey this this Kylin look at it it uh conferred divine legitimacy on it and the Kylin is woo, 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 and you know trying to free itself from its bonds that's you, you know, you, you, that's, a, a, as we call in the uh, celestial creature business, cheating.
1: Yeah. Although, of course, it doesn't stop, as I mentioned, the Ming from uh, saying when Zheng He brings giraffes back from Africa uh, on his voyages of gunboat diplomacy, I guess is what we would call it, if they'd had guns on their boats. They probably did have guns on their boats. Chinese had guns. Um, the giraffes brought back from Africa and the Mings are like, look. Zheng He, who we sent out, has brought us a Kai Lin demonstrating that we have the Mandate of Heaven, and then all the Kai Lin uh, for the next 200 years were drawn like giraffes. And uh, the notion that the Kylan won't even crush the grass when it walks on it may be a Ming addition to the Kylan legend. Because they, they so just there. crush it a little with their tiny little giraffe feet. With their tiny, tiny uh, hooves and their big yes. spindly legs, yeah. And having them
0: turn out to just be giraffes, of course, is, I think, even more a fun-ruiner thing than looking at than reindeer. You know, what the original uh, character was meant to mean. Right. So, ways to uh, use this in our gaming. I think uh the... Obvious thing that comes to mind for me is, uh, you the good guys, uh, find out that the, uh, the usurpers, uh, possibly a usurper, uh, regime, uh, run by corrupt eunuchs behind the scenes, uh, that's the way things go in, uh, in Chinese politics. You always blame the eunuchs, um, that they have captured, uh, the Kailin and it's your job, uh, to free the, uh, the unwilling Kailin who does not wish to confer legitimacy upon this uh, regime. And so that gives you a, a great uh, MacGuffin, a sympathetic creature to go save. And, of course, when you uh, free the Kailin uh, from his bonds, he's uh, then uh, or she is able to uh, confer upon you added powers so that if you've uh, had the uh, Dickens beaten out of you uh, in the big fight uh, leading up to the freeing of the Kylin, then, boom, you get all healed back and ready to go and, and fight uh, whatever uh, terrible sorcerous forces of the uh, magical eunuchs are uh, coming at you.
1: And I think that um you can borrow elements of Western unicorn myth. If, for example, the battle to free the Kailin has gone badly, the eunuchs have beaten the hell out of you, they've drained all your ki, et etc., cetera, et cetera, and they throw you into the dungeon where they're keeping the Kailin, and then the Kailin shows up and touches you with his soft downy antlers and licks you with his uh, soft Kailin tongue, and that action uh instills in you the mandate of heaven and lets you uh rise up and kick the heck out of the guards and rescue everybody, and that the act of you being defeated was a necessary and virtuous act so that you could get into the presence of the Kai Lin who could then fix you up.
0: And not know Feng Shui fans are thinking, Robin, aren't you going to mention how you'd use uh these in the uh Feng Shui setting and uh the idea that you might think, well uh maybe maybe the Kai Lin is is ascended, maybe the uh Kylin like some dragons have taken on human form and don't wish to be returned to it but the ascended uh they're not so nice they represent the uh uh the current uh, power oligarchy uh so it may well be that the uh the Kylins of course unlike uh, the dragons and magical bear spirits and uh the cranes and so forth that they abstained from this whole uh gaining human form because why would you go and do that and uh, the fear of the other members of the Ascendant is that contact with a, a Kylin could then uh, force them to revert to their previous forms, which, of course, the, is the number one thing that they don't want to do and why they've set up this uh, global power structure to prevent. And so uh, you could uh, find... Uh, Kai Lin in the uh, Tang Dynasty uh, juncture. You can uh, have a fight there and meet the Kai Lin and uh, then uh, ask it if it wants to come back to the contemporary era or even 1850 and uh, reveal some ascended so that uh, you could uh, uh, tie that into the whole... Uh, uh, extra kooky uh, mythology of the uh, fang shui game.
1: Yeah. And I think it is fun if it's just a reindeer. <laughs> well, and, and if you want a, a kung fu reindeer. I mean, reindeer, a magic reindeer, like Rudolph, but a reindeer.
0: Right. And if you want a kung fu deer, uh, the first Choi uh, uh Detective D movie, uh, uh, Detective D and the Mystery of the Phantom Flame, does have a fight uh, with a uh, CGI uh, a reindeer, so... Uh, th- that's all you need to uh, to prove that uh, whether, whether we're talking about a uh, creature with antlers and the uh, the scales of a fish and a bunch of other chimerical qualities or just, you know, straight up Rudolph, uh, they can uh, kick ass in uh, any Wuxia universe you uh, care to name. And uh, on that note, uh, I don't want to anger any really tough reindeer who know Kung Fu. So I think we'd better... Uh, close up this segment and uh, Dasher and has a our, mean temper yes and, and head to our final segment
1: have you found the yellow sign the king in yellow Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold
0: foil embossing in a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described.
1: A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated king in yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. It's time once again for
0: Fun with Science, the uh, segment in which we take key principles of uh, scientific knowledge and then uh, mess with them until they are fun. And uh, this time around, in keeping with this all-request episode, we have a question from Patreon backer Drew, who asks, what was the real, possibly Delta Green-related event that prompted the U.S. Air Force to consider stopping the rotation of the Earth with a thousand Atlas engines. So this is not the first time that we have covered a somewhat out there US Air Force proposal that they didn't wind up following through on, uh, I think and in it's this case, insecurity
1: from being the youngest service. I think they're just very, very. They're like, oh, the other services won't respond. We have to come up with an idea of blowing up the moon, or I know, stopping the Earth's rotation.
0: Well, it's it's also, I think, perhaps high altitude and the effect of yeah, uh, oxygen could be, deprivation.
1: Could be breathing a lot of a lot of jet fuel that could be part of yes. it.
0: Yes, and uh, you know, if if you're in the, the the army, they just have a lot of practical logistical concerns. Uh, how do we get all these people and all of their equipment over to this place in order to uh, fight these people we need to fight? So that's just... They're very practical. Their feet are right. literally on the ground. That's their job. Literally, literally. And uh, the Navy, of course, uh, their concern is if things go weird, they drown. So let's not get too speculative. But the Air Don't Force... get too weird. The, the right. high flyers, people up in the upper stratosphere, this time and around... they're coming down with a great idea. Right. Uh, and so... Uh, they're thinking, what do we do in the event of nuclear war to prevent a, uh, a catastrophe that destroys, uh, presumably, the continental U.S.? That's what they'd be most concerned with. And, of course, it's the question of, uh, you know, how to just uh, eliminate uh, nukes is, is not on the table. So that the obvious, much more sensible thing to do then is to stop the rotation of the Earth. Uh, and conveniently, uh, the other thing that the Air Force has And, uh, that any of the armed services have is they have equipment, expensive equipment that they commission from contractors or they carefully, uh, and the politicians carefully make sure that the contractors are, uh, you know, in key districts. What could you possibly, uh, you know, somebody probably was sitting around, Ken, I'm going to guess and went, what rationale could we propose to get another whole bunch of engines? And the advantage of that is, Unlike engines that you put in planes, you wouldn't put them in the planes and then see if they fly and have a bunch of them crash. That's always embarrassing. You would just leave them all around and also in very strategic locations around uh, the U.S. In order to, uh, when the nukes flew, you would just turn on all the engines uh, and uh, would stop the rotation of the Earth and...
1: What's the part where that stops the nukes? That's- well, the notion is that since the nukes are targeting uh, America's uh, nuclear arsenal, if you stop the rotation of the Earth, the nukes will overshoot. Because they their their ballistic uh, program will have been to hit a spot on a rotating Earth. And if the Earth's not rotating, can't be hit by a nuclear missile. Tap head gif. Now, uh, before we get into the question of why let's briefly talk about how oh if we must (laughs) if we must engage with mere practicalities and we're stopping the rotation of the earth someone someone has done the math on reddit and so i am not vouchsafing the math and in fact they did the math wrong and other reddit (laughs) people called them out
0: that would be the opposite of vouchsafing
1: and then did not fix it because that's reddit yes so i fixed it but i might have fixed it wrong because i don't know if anyone knows I do history, not math. I was told there would be no math. And and you're also not planning to stop the rotation of the Earth. I am not. And do you know why I'm not, Robin? Because it's unpossible. Because the F-1 rocket engine, which powered the Saturn V, is four and a quarter times as powerful as an Atlas, and it would take 2.437 sextillion Sextillion with a sex and a tillion (laughs) Saturn V first stages, a first stage being five engines to fire for one day to stop the earth. So did you do the
0: math on how many earths you would need to fit that many engines on?
1: Well, you would, you would certainly, first of all, run out of fuel to burn, uh, in the engines. Uh, that would be the entire mineral body of the Earth, pretty much, that you would have consumed in these rockets by firing them all day. And um, uh, so it would hardly matter. <laughs> hardly matter the fact that also stopping the Earth creates horrific angular momentum, windstorms and tsunamis and whatnot to destroy the world anyway. So don't do it, kids. Can't be done.
0: Well, it turns out uh, that Nerolathotep and, and Zathagua... Uh, are not bound by the mere, uh, earthly fossil fuel supply. They're certainly not bound by Reddit, I'll tell you that. Well, actually, they're all over Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they're not <laughs> bound <there's>, by it. <laughs> there's, there's been a, uh, a marked decrease in neuralathotep activity as, uh, 9,990 of his faces are just typing on Reddit all day. Right. So, uh, this gets to the, uh, the next part of the question... As always, is,
1: Star Trek was correct. Computers distract killers.
0: Exactly. Uh, so uh how does this get us into a, a
1: uh, Delta Green scenario? Okay. So there's two possibilities. The first possibility is Delta Green did, in fact, want to alter the rotation of the Earth. Not stop it, but change it uh, by a couple of atoms' width, which is the, uh, the amount that a thousand Atlas engines might do. If they were all fired at once. And I think that the, the trick there is if they're going through the math and they're like, well, here's the problem. Yogg-Sothoth is tangent to the earth. We're we're ruined. Um, uh, the stars are going to come right. Cthulhu's is going to rise. The world's going to be destroyed. How do we stop that? And someone says, how right do the stars have to come? And they're well, pretty right. I mean, that's the whole point, right? Well, does it have to be down to the atom level right? Because if we can just shift the Earth relative to the stars by a teeny bit, they can never come right. And I think that might have been, assuming the first possibility that someone actually did want to set up all these engines and fire them off, that might have been the Delta Green white paper that uh, was circulated. Right. Now, the other possibility is they just wanted a thousand engines to power the secret space program and set up the Delta Green colonies on the moon and Mars. So you take one of them, Robin. Right.
0: Well, the challenge in both cases... Is- is that Delta Green are us. They're the player character organization. Right, uh, yeah. So where is the conflict? So the thing about Delta Green white papers, of course, is they fall into the hands of their
1: adversaries, uh, Majestic 12. Yes, and indeed, since this uh, was originally in the 50s, uh, this, this plan was come up with, it might have been a thing where Delta Green comes up with the idea, and then they turn it over to Majestic to run the numbers.
0: Right, and so this... The sinister thing that Majestic, of course, would be trying to do uh, could be, uh, A, setting up their own uh, moon missions that you've got to sabotage, or that they are altering the uh, rotation of the Earth in order to make the stars write faster— uh, because, of course, they think that everything that comes pouring through the gate, that they've got all the
1: right formula. Right. And, that uh, if they can bring it right at a time and place of their choosing, then they can uh, trap Yog sothoth in a, in a jar yes. or a magnetic bottle.
0: Yes. They have, they have a, an anti-gate that they think or they can... Or a pentagon. Yes. Uh, exactly so. And so uh, this gives our uh, player characters uh, something to try and stop. And so they can... Part of this can be the research of going back and finding out that... Uh, you know, where the white paper came from and uh, digging back into the, uh, you know, w- what is really going on with this giant requisitioning and uh, you have right. to set it up so that there's something exciting to interrupt at the end, right? You don't want them just showing up at uh, McDonnell Douglas uh, with their ID and just shutting down the assembly line, the that's, production, yeah, yeah, right. That's boring.
1: I, I think I think one of the fun things is, uh, it, by the way, it was called Project Retro. That was its official name. And I think one of the fun things is you could mention it very early in the game as an example of the kind of insane things that have been thought of and abandoned. And you say, well, there was project retro where they're going to stop the earth's rotation. And it's like, what with, with rocket engines? That's dumb. And then you have a bunch of other weird plans that they've tried. And then that gets sort of dropped in as, as an initial briefing. And then every now and again, they'll see someone who's got, you know, uh oh, that's weird. Their jacket says that they've been working on project retro, but I thought that was, that's odd. It's like, oh, don't worry about it. It just turned into a defense boondoggle. Right. This is, this is still a live project. Someone is still doing this for some reason. And then. They can have the sort of bureaucratic, who's running this thing? Why is this project, is it going of itself? Is it itself a mythos entity? you know, government contract as mythos entity. And it decides I'll stop the earth, uh, briefly and gain power to, uh, grow up and, and, and pupate and become a gigantic color out of space. Um, enough of this, I don't want to just hide in a well. Cause
0: even if all you do is, is cause California to fall into the sea, that's, that's a lot of psychic energy that you've just, right.
1: Yep, exactly. So it could be the lawyer. It could be a, a big color out of space that has uh bold new plans. It could be a self-aware, uh, government contract that uh that is operating against you uh on some level and uh where that came from is is an exercise for the viewer um all manner of possibilities the,
0: the engines in fact which are placed all across america could be a way of disseminating colorative space that so they're really not meant at all to generate any force but in fact they are the uh the vector of a um
1: massive countrywide colorization Uh, if you will. I mean, I think you definitely need the scene where the agents are driven out to the middle of Wyoming or somewhere and they go out to the desert on this, you know, grid that they were given by a now dead informant and there's just, you know, seven giant Atlas rocket engines set up in the middle of the desert and there's no indication as, as to what's going on and maybe there's like a little chain link fence around that says government property. If you step on here, you can be shot, but that's it. And then I think that's just that visual is is so strong and the the enigma of it.
0: Yeah. And then there's a tank full of stuff. And, of course, as soon as you, the GM, say, or keeper uh, keyboard director, say, uh, there's a tank. you, you got to go and look at what's in the tank. And as soon as you look at what's in the tank, guess what? It's a color you haven't seen before.
1: Whoa. Right. Whoa. Yeah, I, I think there's all kinds of uh, just possibilities for stumbling onto a piece of Project Retro. And then the notion also is that maybe – what it's meant to do is recreate the old megalithic uh, uh, stone patterns that so we don't have the magic technology that they did to build Stonehenge. Uh, but we can generate the same number of joules of energy as Stonehenge can, uh, rather than by, um, uh, you know, setting it up and um, uh, praying over it with druids. We just light a billion uh, pounds of liquid oxygen on fire. And it basically, it's the same thing. And so, the notion is not that we're going to change the earth's rotation, but you're going to create a magical pattern. And if you, you know, you're to do a thing where you unroll the maps and you find where all of it's been. And it's in a giant ring like Stonehenge, or it's in a, a pentagram if you're boring, or it can be an elder sign or a yellow sign or something. And it's like, Oh my God, uh that's what's going on. Project retro is not actually about stopping the earth. It's about changing the earth.
0: Yes. It's called project retro. You think uh, retro rockets, but in fact, it's, uh trying to bring back an earlier eon so right. it's about uh allowing all of the 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 great uh, race of Yith to come uh coning their way back through uh, uh rifts in the in the time
1: continuum right or or uh, to reawaken atlantis which is uh, of course run by mage kings
0: right so as soon as you drop the idea of the jet engines are actually going to be used as engines and instead are a force of some other magic. It's uh, difficult to think then of a Cthulhu entity that uh, wouldn't want in on
1: that action. Right. Uh, the sky is literally the limit, I guess. Or the earth's crust is the limit. Right. One of those, one of those is the limit. It might
0: all be about uh, getting that sea level up so that, uh, a Ryla gets moving. It could be, uh, exactly. pretty much anything. It could be just an attempt to trigger earthquakes. Uh, it would be a big surprise, right, if, if Ryla rose in Utah. Mm-hmm. Everybody expected no one
1: would expect that, yeah, <laughs> except one guy in Majestic Twelve was like just as I thought, yes,
0: and the, and the question would be you know, or it could be like South Dakota, so the question would then be, how
1: long would it take for anyone to notice that Ryla had, had risen <laughs> well there's a there's an angle there, it's both acute and obtuse, yes, huh, ain't seen one of those and sought 4. yeah.
0: Like uh, it's been a while since I've uh, covered the whole distance on my ranch, and look, there's a rilet
1: on it. That's that's what the secret is: is you is you don't have a bunch of uh, nervous Nellies from New England looking at things. You just have a bunch of plain spoken Midwesterners, and they will like. Well, it's non-Euclidean, but it ain't that non-Euclidean. And Ben <laughs> Riley's just like, oh, oh, it's a rock with squids on it. Whatever. It's
0: uh, it's upsetting the cows a little, but not a lot. Yeah, you
1: know, not so
0: much as them me go.
1: Yes. I tell you what.
0: Uh, well, th- now that we've uh, deflated all of the suspense. Uh, and um, uh, the
1: world's most ridiculous South Dakota accent. Yes.
0: Uh, <laughs> I think we need to uh, hit the retro button and go back uh, five minutes into this podcast when it was a big world-changing menace. And on that <laughs> note, uh, exit... Uh, in our own little, uh, jet-powered, uh, hole in, uh, in reality, uh, through which we will emerge, uh, one week from now. Dun dun dun. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors! Atlas Games! Pelgrane Press! Ask the Gown! Arc Dream! Dark Tower! And Pro
1: Fantasy Software! Music as always is by James Semple! Audio editing by Rob Borges! Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin!
0: Keep this podcast from spinning off its axis alongside such Patreon backers as...
1: Corey Welch! Fred Kish! John Kingdon! Lewis R.S. Evans. And Mark Giles.
0: Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin.
1: Check out our latest design, Polyp Fiction. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once
0: again, we will talk about stuff.